Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that wants you to leave your husband. Today we have Zoe, (laughs) Julia, Bianca, and Laura. Today we're going to be talking about marriage and the nuclear family structure. I uh, want to start off with a little precursor that a lot of what we'll be talking about is very binary and heteronormative, which is because marriage is very binary and heteronormative mm-hmm. um, and is founded yep. yeah, on white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, which is why we're here to talk about it. But don't worry, because same-sex marriage will also not be sparred from my wrath. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll also talk about how um, race and racism have played into the politics of marriage in that timeline as well. So totally. Also probably worth mentioning that none of us on this call are married or have kids, <laughs> nor have any of us ever been married or have kids. So, uh, you know, the, the people who could have been here and could have spoken to those things could not be here with us this evening. Um, but, you know, if, if cis men can talk about things that they haven't experienced with confidence, so can we. And I think we've done our research. So love true. The, love the journalistic integrity here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also just say we're experts on how not to be married. You know? Yeah. So. Ooh. Absolutely. Big expert on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so wanted to start off with one of our faves, an Emma Goldman quote. Love. The strongest and deepest element in all life, the harbinger of hope, of joy, of ecstasy, love, the defier of all laws, of all conventions, love, the freest, the most powerful molder of human destiny. How can such an all-compelling force be synonymous with the poor little state and church-begotten wed? Marriage? Ugh, this is one of my favorite quotes when I came to the episode document and saw it. I was just like, (laughs) fuck yes. You know I had to. I love this quote so much because Emma is, like, such a fucking romantic. And so I like that it really shows how, like, being against marriage is not being, like, no, you shouldn't have, like, fulfilling love lives and romances. It's just, like, those are not necessarily the same thing. And we'll get into that. Also, like, reading this, I'm just, like, I want whatever the fuck Emma had. Like, wow. Like, hard same. (laughs) The way she writes about love is, like, I'm, like, okay, cool. Right. I'm like, what secrets did she have? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I want to start off with a little history of the institution of marriage. Utilizing marriage to oppress women dates back to ancient Rome. As it turns out, the word for family stems from the root famulus, which um, meant slaves. Familia referred to a household uh, ruled by a man in which he owned his wife, uh, children, and enslaved people and that was all just considered his like familia i told my brother that we were going to be doing this episode and he's married to an incredible uh woman who listens to this podcast (laughs) um and he was like you know i am so protective of my property and like he just like leaned into it (laughs) um but yeah i mean like it's fucked (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly um but in that situation you don't have to leave your husband. We stand. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, under Roman paternal power, the husband had the right to life and death over his household. So if he chose to murder his wife, that was simply an expression of his own rights. Um, and I think it's just really clear to see from like this early definition how domestic violence is like inherent to marriage, not like an exception to the rule. It like totally. is the rule of marriage. Yeah. When I ever talk about – because I think that if I weren't aware of what – the largest use of gun violence in the United States is in domestic violence cases. And, like, a lot of leftists are, like, so ready to be pro-gun for, like, fighting fascists, which I get. But I am very hesitant on that specifically because of this because this is not a problem that's going to be going away anytime soon. Yeah, also number one cause of homicidal death in the United States is domestic violence. Yeah, no, that's such a good point, too, because a lot of mass shooters as well have a history of domestic violence. Yes. Um, So, yeah, very intertwined. 
And then another important piece of the history of marriage, this is obviously like a very abridged version. We could talk about this for hours. <laughs> this is the entire history, <laughs> missing nothing. <laughs> but uh, marriage is also something that was utilized by colonizing forces to instill Western notions of patriarchy and gendered ideals onto indigenous peoples. Um, the seventh century Jesuit missionaries wrote about their experiences with the Naskapi people by saying that they were surprised by the amount of power women had um, and the Jesuits chastised indigenous men for not being the quote unquote masters of their wives and children, which then became a primary goal of the missionaries to get women to obey men's control. Um, because that is how they saw like, you have to control women in order to be able to like control these societies and like instill like Western uh, ideals. And this happened everywhere. Um, in Australia, I was reading uh, an article specifically about how a lot of Aboriginal women were forced to enter marriages with colonizer men, which not only did they not consent to, but they didn't really fully understand what that even meant because that wasn't present in those uh, societies. So just fucked up. Deeply. <laughs> yeah. And then also in talking about the history of marriage, I wanted to talk about our girl, Sylvia Federici. Oh, oh. Uh, the witch hunts, which escalated due to land privatization. And we've talked about this on the podcast numerous times, so I won't go too in depth. But witch was a term which referred to women who were seen as being overly sexual, having children out of wedlock, being argumentative, and showing other behaviors that contradicted the norms of femininity. Um, and many of these traits directly relate to unmarried women. Capitalism had to eliminate any threat to the full exploitation of workers, and due to cis women's ability for reproduction, they had to be controlled. As Sylvia wrote, love this quote, a woman refusing her own oppression is one of the highest crimes against the capitalist patriarchy. Why else would some of the most sadistic forms of torture ever invented be used on the witches? Literally. Federici also wrote a lot about the illusions of love in marriage and how marriage was a purposeful arrangement so that a man could continue to work under capitalism. Quote, because having somebody at home who takes care of you is the only condition of not going crazy after a day spent on an assembly line or at a desk. The more blows the man got, gets at work, the more his wife must be trained to absorb them, the more he is allowed to recover his ego at her expense. And I think like, you know, and when, when we think about her writing, the more blows a man gets at work, it can it can certainly relate to domestic violence in the home. Um, but it also can relate to more subtle things. Um, because many men, yes, even leftist men still don't understand why their mood leaks onto everyone or mm. still don't understand the way that their mood leaks onto everyone around them. People who were raised and socialized as girls are often the ones to soothe, comfort, ask open-ended questions, and whatever else will get their man out of a funk. Federici points out that our current system capitalized literally on that, increasing tensions in the home. Yeah, that is a perfect transition to what I wanted to talk about next, um, because leftist men are often guilty of reinforcing the same gender dynamics so in Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, you might have heard of it, by Angles, one of literally the only Have you good heard men. of him? <laughs> heard of him? Um, one of truly the only good men. Uh, talks about Western notions of marriage and the nuclear family and how that came to be. And how it's used to keep women as an oppressed class. He wrote that women need to continue putting up with the abuse because of their economic restraints. It was purposefully made difficult for women to leave marriages since they did not have access to income otherwise. Um, he also says that within marriage, men are the bourgeois and women the proletariat. And I think that's a really important distinction because even in many places that have had state socialism or communism, including USSR, communist China, Cuba, et cetera, basically everywhere, um, like the gender dynamics remained in place. And going into these histories could probably will at some point be an, an entire episode. Um, yeah, so forcing women to stay in the home and perform reproductive labor also happens under patriarchal socialism slash communism. Um, and like, yeah, there have been a lot of examples of where either like divorce becomes legal and then once like a lot of women started filing divorces the like men were like no 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 oh no like we have to take this back like this is bad we didn't actually think they would like leave us 
which is like, why do you want women who don't want to be with you? But that's another issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one also prominent example of this is Alexandra Kolontai's like soft exile from Soviet Russia um, to being an ambassador to Norway, um, which was because she had like some of the most revolutionary feminist visions um, for like communal childcare, socializing domestic labor, um, like just like really revolutionizing how the family structure worked. And uh, a lot of Soviet men were like, yeah, that can't happen. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of just like sent her away. They were like, we'll give her a job in Norway. Uh, we don't want this to happen here. Um, and then I also really want to recommend an essay called When Patriarchy Kowtows, The Significance of the Chinese Family Revolution for Feminist Theory, which goes into detail about how rural women were organized primarily by being appealed to about the unhappiness in their marriages and their labor situations. But then once they were like brought into the party or into the movement, it was just kind of like, oh, those issues are actually back burnered and like that's less important, but it was used to like Right, like the people organizing knew that those issues would like get women on board and then we're kind of like, yeah, but that's like a back burner issue. So yeah, it happens just Ugh. over and over again. Over. Yeah, over. I also feel like, I mean, this is totally still something we see today in leftist spaces, right? Where like women and people raised as women are expected to like do the labor of cooking for the group mm -hmm. or like bring the snacks and things like that. Um, and I feel like this is like you're talking about, like this goes back really far. Um, there's one book that I want to recommend specifically about how this worked in the Cuban revolution. Um, it's The Politics of Che Guevara, Theory and Practice by Samuel Farber. Um, and it really goes into a lot of how like Che had all these super radical ideas about society, but then when it came to like, who should actually be fighting the revolutionary wars, it was like men and then mm -hmm. who should be doing the care work to support those radical troops, women. So this is definitely something that like has existed even in radical social formations, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Which is why for the men listening at home that are like, I'm not like that, think about that. <laughs> <laughs> if that's true, like happy for you, but like sit on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Send us an email about Ms. it. Andrus podcast. <laughs> yeah. So then I thought next we could talk about just kind of more general critiques of marriage and the nuclear family structure. So I wanted to start off with like one of the seminal texts about this, which is Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Yeah. She wrote about how in a lot of cultures, the marriage contra contracts are made between like father-in-law and son-in-law. Um, but rarely between husband and wife. And this is just kind of a clear way in which marriage was used to like transfer the power over women from one generation of men to the next. And she also makes the claim, which relates really well to our conversation last week with Sarah Jaffe, that feminized labor, such as nurses, nursing and teaching are purposefully undervalued so that even when women are able to work or join the workforce, they still are economically dependent on men in a lot of cases. Yeah. Right. And this also ties into something I wanted to talk about, which was the ways that women were made like by virtue of their jobs to uphold the structure of the nuclear family. And so as we were already talking about in Sylvia Federici's book, she documents that in 16th and 17th century Europe, midwives were under a lot of suspicion and strict scrutiny because it was believed that they actually were facilitating infanticide. And in fact, during those centuries, more women in Europe were executed for infanticide than any other crime quote unquote crime, except for witchcraft. So it was like witchcraft and alleged infanticide were like the two most common crimes that women were executed for at the time. And this sort of cultural suspicion around midwifery is what gave way to this sort of like male doctor as an authority figure trope. Like not strictly because midwives were deemed to be medically incompetent, but because male doctors were seen as uh, more trustworthy and less likely to induce infanticide. So like, for example, in France and Germany, midwives basically had to become spies of the state if they wanted to continue to work. So they had to report all new births to the state. They had to like find the fathers of children born out of wedlock and examine the women who were suspect suspected of like having secretly given birth. And they had to report all of that. Um, similarly in Protestant communities at the time, uh, neighbors were asked to basically keep an eye out on the women in their neighborhoods for these same reasons. Like they were like, 
asked to like report births out of wedlock, basically try to keep this idea of a nuclear family structure as intact as possible. And Federici herself explains the effect this had really well. She writes, quote, the female body was turned into an instrument for the reproduction of labor and the expansion of the workforce, treated as a natural breeding machine, functioning according to rhythms outside of women's control, end quote. Oh, amazing. Love Sylvia. Just like every single one of her quotes, I'm like, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, bitch. <laughs> and then I also want to talk about um, Nancy Shutterell's writing. Um, that essay is called Mothering Male Dominance and Capitalism. And in this, she kind of outlines how all societies are based around um, a sex gender system. So our sex gender system, as we know, creates two binary genders and how this system is upheld in order to create two spheres of work and of home. And that devalued the work done in the home since it's outside of the monetary exchange that a capitalist society is based on. However, the home produces what's considered capitalism's most crucial commodity, labor power. Maybe you've heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you know her. (laughs) Uh, Have you heard of a little something called labor power? If not, please refer to our previous episode, Work Won't Love You Back. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) And that occurs as women are expected to rear children who ultimately will join the workforce. But also women take on this mothering, caretaking role towards their husbands who need to be like, taking care of like, come home from work, feed them, do their laundry, et cetera. Just like take care of men so that they can go back to work. Um, while like women do all of the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, totally. And I think like Laura was alluding to, this dovetails really well off of like what y'all were talking about with Sarah last week, where like it's those structures that help create gender like Mm -hmm. having this division of labor is part of how like society constructs the fact that there are like this idea that there are two genders which we obviously know is not true but like this is one of those things that helps four non-binary hosts get together and make a podcast about the institution of marriage oh my gosh (laughs) that really was such a good point she made though where it was like the institution creates what we call Mm -hmm. gender Mm -hmm. right i was listening to the episode like oh my god that's a great point thank you sarah (laughs) what a great podcast Uh, but yeah I guess I I just wanted to talk a little bit about like how we still see that playing out today because I feel like people sometimes think like oh that was in the past like women don't all stay in the home anymore Um, but there are still a lot of ways that marriage operates as an institution of social power today Um, I think like while obviously a lot more people get married for love and personal reasons than was true in the past, there's still a huge class and social component to it because getting married allows you to get tax breaks and have the state legally recognize the importance of your relationship in so many different ways. Yeah, and it also allows people to literally have health insurance when they might not have access to it otherwise if their job doesn't... um give them that and so that also like regardless of who is the person in the dynamic who has access to employment with health insurance which still is predominantly a man um it it does create a larger sense of dependence than if we had something like universal health care or anything like that right yeah it yeah. like purposefully pressures people into having to enter these arrangements mm-hmm. exactly right Yeah, that's a great point. And with like immigration too, right? Like being able to move to a different country is often dependent on whether you can say you're married to someone who's a citizen of that country, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously also can force, make people feel forced into those situations. Um, Essentially the state polices who has a right to share your life from who can make medical decisions for you when you're ill to who can care for your children if you're unable to, to even having like the legal right to sue a company that's responsible for your death, like in order to be able to, if you like die from a medical device, like that's one of those things that being married makes it a lot easier to do and be like, Mm -hmm. that was my spouse as opposed to someone I cared about in some other way. Ugh, yes. Yeah, which is like so fucked up and why would they put that limitation on it? But I guess it's like, I can see why it's important to have ways to represent that like, I want this person to be in my life and to be able to have a say in important decisions if I'm not able to make them. 
But it's weird that we only allow people to give those rights to like one person generally. Um, like your blood related family is automatically entitled to some of those rights too. But then that really doesn't account for people, especially queer and trans folks for whom chosen family is equally or more important. And there's really no allowance made for that. Yeah. I think- it's also when you think about the fucking AIDS crisis in relation to this, especially like yeah, at a time exactly. when like mass death was happening in, in the queer community specifically. Um, and many of those people who got sick were kicked out of their homes. So the medical decisions and the the kind of secrecy around it and also, like, the isolation around it was so intense. Yeah, like, people could not always get in to see their partners depending on what the restrictions were. And then, of course, there's also the issue of, like, being able to share your property with someone like there are people like you were saying who lost their homes because they were living there with a partner their name wasn't on the lease because it legally couldn't be and then Mm. if their partner passed away they just had no claim over the home um which obviously you know abolish private property but within (laughs) the system we have it's quite fucked up to say that like some people's relationships that they want to be sharing this property with is real and some are just not right Um, And I think just like, you know, for everyone, like most of us have a lot of different people in our lives that we might want to be involved in these types of decisions. And a lot of them aren't blood relatives or romantic partners, but the legal system sets things up in this way to privilege monogamous, mostly heterosexual romantic relationships and really devalue and disregard other significant relationships, especially close friendships Mm. and non-traditional romantic relationships. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're going to get like a lot more into that later in the episode, which I'm excited about. But another like topic intersection with marriage I want to talk about is um, how like sex work and marriage kind of operate as two sides of the same like capitalist patriarchal coin whether it's like inside or outside of marriage women are taught that sex is transactional rather than being for pleasure like we do not talk about women's pleasure in terms of like sex education in terms of like dating like all of that and then it's condemned though when like sex workers of course outside of marriage are like engaging in this transactional like sex for money but celebrated when it's in the confines of marriage, like, yeah, marry this man. Of course, it's presumed you're going to have sex with him. And then he pays for everything with his income. Um, and friend of the pod, Kristen Goetze, as we mentioned earlier, also talks about how like sex and money are always linked in women's lives. And she wrote that mm-hmm. sex is almost always seen as transactional for women. And yet it's only stigmatized when done outside of marriage. Mm. Well, mm-hmm. and not even to mention like, <laughs> men claim this sort of impunity when it comes to consuming sex work mm-hmm. um, without – and so it it then pins, like, wife versus sex worker in this weird fucked up way because the husband is, like, able to do this, like, breach of marriage contract, if we want to call it that, right? Like, I don't feel that way, but, like, a lot right. of people do. Mm-hmm. Um And so he's allowed to do this. So it creates this like dynamic where maybe like a housewife is upset with a sex worker. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Sylvia Federici also talks about um, how capitalism is linked with the condemnation of sex work, because if women are able to, quote, gain money from men without being solely dependent on them, why would women continue to enter unfulfilling marriages? Great question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> asking the, answer asking the great questions. <laughs> asking the important questions. <laughs> and Emma Goldman also wrote a lot about the connections between sex work and the limited economic opportunities for women in um, her essay, The Traffic of Women. And then I also wanted to read this quote that I really like from Havelock Ellis, which says, quote, the wife who marries for money compared with the prostitute is the true scab. She's paid less, given much more in return in labor and care, and is absolutely bound to her master. The prostitute never signs away the right over her own personal rights, nor is she always compelled to submit to a man's embrace. Big asterisk on that. (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Just in terms um, of like violence that happens against particularly like trans sex workers and stuff like that. But yes, yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. But more in terms of like the autonomy from the sexual transaction. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, and then there's similar sentiments um, to this in Kate Millett's prostitution papers when her interviewee Jay says, but when you whore, at least you're getting something back. You're getting cash. In a sense, whoring is less oppressive. With the cash, you can do anything you want to. Cash, you can get from a Southern racist and give it to the Black Panthers. Mm. With the dinner and the date, what can you do? Ooh, yes. Wow, I love that. Um, And of course, as Laura said, like plenty of addendums and not saying, not making the argument like, would sex work exist after capitalism? Was the thing that's fucking dumb. Yeah. Um, but just like <laughs> there are many connections to be made to the way that sex is viewed transactionally mm-hmm. in these ways. If you're confused about what we're talking about, you can go back to our several episodes on sex work specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So true. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I guess shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to talk next about the ways that race and marriage as institutions in the U.S. are intertwined. So obviously this institution of marriage is racialized and it's also very connected to the history of enslavement in the U.S. Um, I'm about to spew off some Latin having never taken any Latin courses. So I want to apologize. No, I'm Don't not you apologize. dare apologize. No, I'm going to say some botched Latin and Good. you're just going to sit Latin is a dead language. <laughs> Just one year of high school Latin deserves it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I took one year of high school Latin, and I already know you're gonna nail it. All right, well, cool. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't, I won't know because I didn't pay attention in class. Don't worry. (laughs) So the term miscegenation comes from the Latin words miscere, which means to mix, and genus, which means race. So mixture of race. And so the first anti-miscegenation laws in what came to be known as the United States actually date back to the 1600s and 1700s, where the first statute banning interracial marriage was passed in Maryland. And then soon after that, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, and Massachusetts all followed suit. And so how were these anti-miscegenation laws justified? obviously in very racist ways. And so one way was so that white people could maintain a clear demarcation between them and the black people whom they enslaved. And so another way that white people attempted to justify these laws was also through a connection to other existing anti-rape laws, which were unsurprisingly applied way more stringently to black people than they were to white people. So effectively punishment was given only to black men, often when they were accused of raping white women, oftentimes falsely accused. And then later on, those anti-rape laws were enacted that uh, were specifically targeted toward Black men. And so the anti-miscegenation laws had like this predominant effect of allowing white people to maintain a belief in their racial superiority. And then that was exacerbated by the fact that these laws were not enforced equally between people of different races and genders. Mm. So I kind of wanted to talk about the ways that like anti-miscegenation and anti-rape laws were applied disproportionately. Um, So in a book by the civil rights advocate and judge A. Leon Higginbotham Jr. called In the Matter of Color, Race in the American Legal Process, he writes, quote, always there was the purported concern for white racial integrity, but curiously, both in practice and by legislation, there was not equal concern about white male integrity. The legal process was tolerant of white male illicit quote unquote escapades involving either white females or black females, but it was relatively harsh on infractions by white females, even when involving white males, and brutally harsh on infractions between black males and white females. And this was like to preserve, like this was like so that like white people could like preserve their like racial purity, basically. And so Um, These anti-miscegenation laws persisted both like in the text of the law and also in their legacies for centuries. And even after the Civil War during the Reconstruction era, several states in the South made uh, interracial marriage illegal in the Black Codes, which were a set of laws that they passed specifically to be enforced against Black people. So this was also where the one drop of blood rule became more widely known, since there were many instances where white men were having sex with Black women, Um, And the rule was devised to demarcate, like, who was Black in the eyes of the law. So, like, in other words, if somebody had one Black ancestor, they were Black in the eyes of these laws. Just, like, very racist, obviously, uh, 
in their roots. And there were a lot of different challenges to these anti-miscegenation laws. But I think the most famous one or the most notable one uh, was the one that made it to the Supreme Court, the 1967 Supreme Court case, Loving versus Virginia, which held that banning interracial marriage was unconstitutional and it was a violation of the 14th Amendment in both the due process and the equal protection clauses. Mm. I feel like um, this is also a yeah. great time to point out that instead of celebrating Valentine's Day, we should all celebrate Loving Day, which is June 12th, mm. which is the anniversary of this court case when like the laws were struck down. Right. So hot tip. Hot tip. <laughs> Maybe that. one time in history that the Supreme Court made a good decision. Mm. right we gotta yeah. take what we can get you yeah know? <laughs> <laughs> so for people who don't know the narrative of this case it's actually extremely extremely horrifying so the plaintiffs were mildred dolores loving who self-identified as native and more specifically rappahannock um, and she also had black and cherokee ancestry and richard perry loving a white man so they were married at the time of the case but before then uh, Mildred had become pregnant and at the time she and Richard were living in Virginia and that state had a law at the time called the Racial Integrity Act of 1924 which made marrying between white and non-white people illegal and so the couple traveled to DC to get married and then they got married there and then they came back to Virginia and then I guess like the authorities found out that they had gotten married because on July 11th 1958 the local police literally raided their home in the middle of the night, uh, hoping to catch the couple having sex so that they like could be like, oh, you broke this anti or anti, you broke this like law that said you couldn't get married and like live together. Um, and the couple was like sleeping at the time the cops raided their home. And when they were woken up by the cops, they were like, here's our marriage certificate. And the cops were like, no, the certificate has no validity in Virginia. And so that couple, the Lovings, were charged with a felony for being married, uh, to which they pled guilty, and then they faced a year in prison because of that. Um, but that sentence was suspended on the condition that they leave Virginia and not return for 25 years. So they were like, okay. So they moved to Washington, D.C. and lived there. Uh, so then about five years later... They began their, they like appealed their case. So they began the appellate proceedings because they were like, okay, we've lived here for five years. We cannot go back to Virginia. All of our family lives in Virginia. We have a lot of other connections in Virginia. We don't really like living here in DC. So we're going to appeal this case. And so when they appealed, they were appointed attorneys by the ACLU. But the appellate proceedings also did not go the way they wanted. Um, in fact, at the county court level, the judge ruling on their case wrote this terrible thing in his opinion, Jesus. which is, quote, Almighty God created the races and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages like interracial marriages. And so the fact he's uh, uh, oh, the fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix, end quote. That was in so, a court opinion. So, like, all white people should return to Europe then? Like, I, like what is he saying? Right. Like, and, like, this is, like, a common refrain that uh, legal scholars at the time were using to justify, like, racial apartheid and Jesus. things related to that. Yeah. Um, and Just so like also ignoring um, how did a lot of the enslaved people get to the U.S. Right. right. <laughs> Any ideas? It's right. funny that he just calls it the interference when it's like right. not mentioning this was like kidnapping and enslaving people, but yeah, go off, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So that was like not to mention white people aren't indigenous here. Right. So, like, yeah, what I mean, he's that's saying, also a great point. <laughs> like, no understanding of anything. Right. Whatever. Like, yeah. He's just like, yeah, everyone's separate, but like, white people are from America. It's just like so <laughs> no. insane. Yeah, what's it's so insane. I have a lot of follow up questions for him. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. So then <laughs> they lost at the county level. Then they went up to the next court, which was a district court level where the court also upheld that these anti-miscegenation laws were constitutional. So they were like, yeah, like, it's fine. The law says you can't get married. So then they were like, okay, now we're going to appeal the Supreme Court. So they appealed to the Supreme Court. And 
oh my gosh, I was like doing research and I was like, this is just the most heartbreaking thing I've ever read. But the Lovings, the couple themselves didn't attend the oral arguments, but one of the lawyers for them did relay a message from Richard Loving to the Supreme Court justices, which was, quote, tell the court that I love my wife and it is just unfair that I can't live with her in Virginia, end quote. And I'm just like, oh my God, like this is just, this couple was just like put through so much really. Um, And so the Supreme Court ruled unanimously at the end that these anti-miscegenation laws in Virginia did violate the equal protection clause um, because the turning point upon which those, the laws rested was the races of the people involved. So it's like, you can't, the, this law does not apply equally to pe- every person because mm-hmm. you are applying it differently to people specifically because of their race. Yes. Uh, and they also argued that the laws violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment because they were like marriage is one of the basic civil rights of man, which like, yeah, like, I guess like you if you want to get married, you should be able to get married. Um, so they were like, it violated the due process clause as well. So all of what I just said is to say that, like, okay, cool that there aren't laws literally banning people of different races from getting married. But it's also important to recognize that, like, this institution we call marriage here in the U.S., like, it has a lot of different flaws, one of which notably is that it's been racialized for centuries. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And also super heteronormative. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing us to our next topic. Um <laughs> Ooh. which we're calling quote-unquote same-sex marriage. Um, that is the term used. That's, of course, also very binary. But look, marriage is fucked up. So I don't know if you got that by now. There's not a great way to talk about it. So yeah, of course, based on what Julia was saying earlier um, and like the way benefits or perks work in marriage, um, I'm not about to make a case that like lesbian and gay couples should not have those perks. I am about to make a case that we should abolish marriage and those perks should not be confined to a monogamous marriage. I'll continue. (laughs) So I think the idea of like bringing same-sex couples into this like already outdated oppressive system just doesn't really do anything to change the system. If anything, it like legitimizes it because it's like, oh, now like gay couples can get married too. See, it's great. Um, And this just feels very like neoliberal, um, kind of similar like girl boss feminism in the sense that it's like, oh, the goal is to like, integrate women or in this case like gay and lesbian people into the same structures already in place um and many queer theorists argue for the decentering and deinstitutionalizing of marriage um and like allowing gay and lesbian couples into the institution primarily applies to the most privileged which is probably like middle to upper class probably white cis and it only like works to further support the idea of a nuclear family while still stigmatizing alternative family structures, which are often present amongst queer people and people of color. Um, And I also just feel like a similar energy to like the trans ban discourse of the military, um, which reminds me of like one of my favorite tweets recently, which just said like, I'm trans, I wanna ban the military. It's like, yeah, just fucking, we don't need to diversify these like Mm -hmm. fucked up systems, just burn them the fuck down. That's my take. Oh yeah, Uh, two things really quick. Um, one is the tax benefits. Also, um, you it's more expensive to be married if you don't have property. Like the taxes are actually higher. And so it, it more <laughs> it's like it's more about property than it is about anything else. Um, yeah. and, and so, again, having like same sex marriage again is not only going to really benefit folks who either need health insurance or own property. Um, And the thing is, for me, I don't necessarily have the same stance as Zoe. Uh, (laughs) I am a romantic, and I also would love to dress in a fucking bomb-ass outfit and have everyone I know and love there. Uh, But I am a romantic. No, I know you are. I'm just saying in... In my romance, I think I want to have a big-ass party that celebrates my love. Yeah, and you can do that. I know. But I also, like, hate it. It's, like, a, it's a struggle. It's like I, I still want, like, a beautiful lifelong romance and, like, partnership. I just don't want them to legally own me. It, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. Personally. Obviously. No, I, I also don't <laughs> want that. But I feel like... <laughs> 
I would never, I would never be with someone who thought they had any power over me at all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I guess the like marriage part is irrelevant at that point because anyone who's around me is like, don't, you can't even try to control this. (laughs) Continuing on. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I feel like what you're trying to say is like marriage also has an important social role, right? So like it's, you know, like queer people can dream of getting married too. And we're here to tell you why you should not. But also (laughs) like, I get it, right? Like it's, I do think everyone should have an equal opportunity to (laughs) participate in these fucked up structures but we should also tear them down at the same time. Exactly. Yes, right 100%. There. Yes, yes, yes. that is what I meant. I was not implying otherwise. No, no, no. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being an ass. Because we've also talked on here before, I think on like a 420 episode about what Zoe and my wedding would look like. And so I, I want to marry Laura. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Just as long as we're still on the same page. That's mostly what I was trying yeah, to get. Yeah, just confirming exist. 2022, we're all going to be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a marriage. complex being, on the one hand, abolish marriage. On the other hand, Laura's my wife. I don't <laughs> well, see why dialectic. I keep Laura's <laughs> yes. It's dialectic. Right, exactly. right, right. Okay, just making sure. That's mostly what I was saying. <laughs> I love this is all actually about Laura was like, Zoe, are you still my wife? (laughs) (laughs) Just double checking. Just, yeah, gotta know. I am. Yeah, I'm still down. Um, Okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit about some positive visions of alternative living structures that aren't based solely around marriage and what that can look like. I think one of the interesting things to me is that most people actually do have some type of experience living in family structures that aren't based around monogamous marriage. Um, For a lot of people, that might be because their parents were divorced or not in a relationship or because they were raised by people other than their birth parents or because they lived with multiple family members besides their immediate like nuclear family. Um, But for many of us who went to college, I also feel like living in a college dorm room is another big way that a lot of people get exposed to an alternative type of living structure. Um, And for me, as soon as my friends and I graduated from college, even though a lot of us continue to live in the same city, I immediately just like really missed living in the same building with them. And at first I was like, I'm just like being weird because nobody else talks about how much they miss this specific aspect of college. But I honestly think about just how like we were able to support each other so much better because of that living structure in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, I think about like how when one of my friends experienced a violent incident on campus, they were able to just like come downstairs to my room and we could immediately talk through it in person and like I could be there for them. We made a plan about how they wanted to respond to it. Um, And even just like being able to wake up and go knock on a friend's door unexpectedly and have that be normal is so different from a lot of like what I and I think a lot of other people have experienced as like regular adult life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that like TV shows and media kind of sold me this vision of living in a big city where like somehow we'd all still be neighbors and live in the same building and have like an equally close living structure. Um, but rent controlled apartments that like our TV (laughs) jobs could not pay for. And we all just afford our own apartment by ourselves somehow. But obviously for financial reasons, that did not end up being the case. And also because a lot of us had to choose where to live based on our jobs. Um, So I feel like especially during quarantine, it's just become so much more clear to me. And I think to a lot of us that it's not just like, I'm not just missing the lack of like adult responsibilities and stuff like that in college, but like literally that living structure that allowed me to interact with and rely on multiple different close friends for support. And I think at a time when most of us are holed up with like at most one or two people that we really get to see regularly, it makes sense why people are missing that type of living structure. But I think the positive side to this is that a lot more people during the pandemic are starting to realize that there are things that don't make sense about trying to structure everything in your life around either living as a single person or a monogamous, possibly married couple. Um, There are some really cool examples of people creating these intentional living structures currently that allow them to live in really close community with multiple friends and chosen family, and often to be able to do so more affordably and sustainably than, say, like, buying a house with just one other person. 
Um, for people who are interested in learning more about how this can look on kind of like a day-to-day -day level, there's a really great episode of the podcast Intercepted called Escape from the Nuclear Family. Um, and it looks at how people in a co-housing structure in Oakland are living during the pandemic specifically and how their living structure is really benefiting them. Uh, the episode was hosted by Naomi Klein, and I'm going to quote a little bit from what she said in the episode because I thought it was really insightful. She said, quote, in a pandemic that confines us to our homes for work, school, and leisure, the single family home is a really bad technology. Not only is it isolating, it's an absurdly wasteful use of resources. Millions of us have noticed it. Without school or babysitters or grandparents to pick up the slack, just keeping everyone fed, sheltered, and possibly educated while trying to do your job takes pretty much every waking moment. If someone actually gets sick with the virus or with something else serious, all bets are off. And that's not just bad for us as individuals, it's bad for society, because it means we have less time to show up for our neighbors or to fully participate in a democracy that is hanging on by a thread. Mm. Yeah, so... Like we've discussed a lot in this episode, monogamous marriage forces individual people, mostly women, to be responsible for the care work of an entire household with little to no outside support. And it encourages us to think that we can't seek outside support, that that's a failure if you do need to seek it. And that can be really hard and also not particularly fulfilling a lot of the time. The good news to me is that we don't have to just like immediately uproot and totally restructure our lives, especially in the middle of a pandemic, to take advantage of some of these more alternative living structures. I think it can start with really simple things like saying hello to your neighbors, offering help to people who live in your apartment building or on your block, and generally being open to the idea that living well involves being able to rely on some of the people that you live physically nearby for support and in turn being able to support them. Um, in our last reading group meeting, I think it was one of our newer Discord members, Lucy, who mentioned that she now has a group text with all of her neighbors in her building because of organizing around tenants' rights that became much more necessary during the pandemic. Um, I think that's just really great and something that we can all take motivation from to really try to get to know the people that we live near because it's not just important for our own personal lives and happiness. It's also important to building solidarity and like actively trying to get closer to the socialist feminist utopia that we want to live in. Mm. Hell yes. Yes. Love to see it. Ooh. Love to see it. Uh, thank you to Lucy. This makes me think about... One of the other things about alternatives to nu to the nuclear family, which Kristen Godzi points out in her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, she writes, quote, Socialists have long understood that creating equity between men and women, despite their biological sex differences, requires collective forms of their support for child rearing. And she does talk, she goes in depth about, again, like the oversimplification of those things, but for our purposes. That was the end of that quote. But there is a lot of support for the United States being one of the worst places to be someone with a uterus. Uh, the anti-abortion laws, lack of paid maternity leave, no universal daycare, and the U.S. only passed anti-discrimination laws against pregnant people in the late 70s. Um, it's a bit of a tangent, but I feel like it's important for us to talk about community-based child rearing as the future, because the whole idea of the nuclear family is to not have that support. It leaves us feeling more isolated and depleted than ever. I know when I found out that someone close to me uh, was pregnant, I was like, okay, how do we create a community to care for this little peanut? And I'm still figuring that out. But, you know, I'll keep you posted, friend. <laughs> um, and uh, I want—I thought it would be nice to end on um, part of an incredible piece, uh, which is like a short book or essay called um, Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto. It's written by Chinzia Aruza, who was our friend of the pod, friend of the pod guest mm -hmm. at our um, Philly really? live show. What but a it, sweetie. She's so sweet. <laughs> uh, she's so cute. I was like, I'm going to play an emo song in front of this incredible scholar. Here we go. <laughs> um, and she was like, you're all so incredible. And yeah, we she like, was so Aww. sweet. It was like, it was so intense. Um, but it was also co-written by Titi Bhattacharya and Nancy Fraser. They write, 
As neoliberalism reshapes gender oppression before our eyes, we see that the only way that women and gender nonconforming people can actualize the rights they have on paper or might still win is by transforming the underlying social system that hollows out rights. In capitalist societies, the pivotally important role of social reproduction, aka anything that ties us together as a society, is disguised and disavowed. Far from being valued in its own right, the making of people is treated as a mere means to the making of profit. Because capital avoids paying for this work to the extent that it can, while treating money as the be-all and end-all, it regulates those who perform social reproductive labor to a position of subordination, not only to the owners of capital, but to those more advantaged waged workers who can offload the responsibility for it onto others. Those others are largely women. For in capitalist society, the organization of social reproduction rests on gender. It relies on gender roles and entrenches gender oppression. So in summation, capitalism reinforces and entrenches the subordination of and isolation within marriage. So if you're going to get married, bring socialism into your home, baby, or, you know, just abolish the whole fucking thing. Hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> you you heard it, it here first. Folks. You heard it here first. <laughs> that was our episode. Thank you for listening. Um, if you like what you heard, you can give us money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Um, we also have a discord where you can chat with us and a reading group. Um, we mentioned one of our amazing reading group members on this week's episode. And truly, if you join, you will not just be benefiting from our wisdom, but from the collective wisdom of all the amazing people in this group. Uh, you might Braxis. say it's our 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 anti-nuclear online family. Exactly. Wow. Yes, that's so true. Um, <laughs> also, we didn't even talk about like covens, but like this is obviously right. Of course. Non-nuclear right. family structure, baby. Baby. So true. Um, so to join our non-nuclear family structure, you can <laughs> Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Um, email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Visit our website, seasonofthebee.com. And rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Love you all. <laughs> love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>